Okay, the reading today is from Mark, chapter 4, from verse 35 to 41. If you've got one of these Bibles, it's on page 1005. So Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day, when evening came, he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And Lord, as we uh, reflect now uh, on who Jesus is and, and, and on the obstacles that, uh, that some of us might have to the existence of God, Lord, we pray that you would show us Jesus, uh, the Son of God who came into our world to save sinners uh, like all of us. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're beginning um, our series, as Graham said today, looking at some of the things uh, that keep people from becoming Christians? Uh, what are the obstacles that people have to kind of embracing uh, Christianity and, and everything about it? And over the last couple of months uh, here at the branch, we've been asking the people that we know to, to fill in the, the rest of the sentence, maybe I'd be a Christian, but... Uh, and we've had a lot of great responses from people. Uh, and maybe you're here today because somebody has asked you that question. Uh, Or maybe you're here today because you want to investigate Christianity more deeply. Uh, Or maybe you're here today because your friend wants you to investigate Christianity more deeply and they asked you and and you felt like you should come. Uh, Whatever the reason, thanks so much for coming. It's great that you can be here. And I really hope that uh, what we think about this morning would be helpful to you uh, and helpful to you in thinking about what life is about and, and who God is and whether he really is there. Uh, and I want to encourage you, if you're here today for the first time, to keep coming back as well in the weeks ahead, over the next three weeks, even if the topics that we're thinking about in those weeks is not really, they're not really the questions that resonate with you, uh, I want to encourage you to keep coming back because I think what happens as we dig deeper into our doubts and our questions, what often happens is, is that we have other doubts and questions uh, that come up along the way that are worth exploring as well. So over the coming weeks, we'll be looking at uh, maybe I'd be a Christian, but I don't need Jesus to be a good person. Uh, Maybe I'd be a Christian, but there are other ways to God. Maybe I'd be a Christian, but it would get in the way. 
Uh, but today we want to think particularly about that obstacle. Maybe I'd be a Christian, but actually I don't really uh, think that God exists, or I'm not sure that he does. And it's a pretty key objection, I think, isn't it? It kind of really strikes at the core of what we're talking about. Uh, because if that objection is right, if God doesn't exist, then that's a massive problem. <laughs> then there's no point being a Christian. If God doesn't exist, then we're wasting our time here today. Uh, and I'm wasting my life being a pastor, telling, trying to teach people about Jesus. Uh, there's nothing worthwhile in pretending that Christianity is real or that God is real uh, if this is all just fake. Uh, one writer in the Bible actually says that. He says, if this is all not true, if the, hope, the only hope that we have is maybe to feel better about ourselves for this life, to kind of uh, pretend that things are, are, are different than they really are, if that's the only hope that we have, then we should be pitied. Uh, and actually worse than that, we should be ashamed of ourselves uh, as Christians because we're perpetuating this myth which is giving people a false hope and a false confidence. But actually, on the other side of that, if this is true, if it's true that God exists, and if it's true that Jesus is God's Son come into our world to make God known to us, and if it's true that apart from Jesus we're alienated from God, we're estranged from God, uh, and we're on our way to an eternity far from the love of God... Uh, and if it's true that we can be reconciled back to God through Jesus, if all that is true, then that's probably the most important thing that you and I can know. So actually, the truth of whether God exists and whether Jesus reveals him, or whether God is fake and doesn't exist at all, that, that question is really important to get to the bottom of. Because if it's fake, then we're wasting our time, but if it's true, then that is the most important thing that any of us can ever know. So the question then is, is the objection valid? Does God exist? What evidence do we have for that? How can we know? I want to spend some time uh, this morning thinking about what it was that convinced the early Christians that God was real and what it was that convinced the early Christians that it was Jesus who revealed God, that Jesus was God himself come into our world as a human being? What on earth was it that convinced them of an idea that seems on the surface so ridiculous and preposterous? Do I want to look at that? What convinced them? But I also want to spend a little bit of time before we do that thinking about the relationship between science and God. That's because in the responses that we got back from people in the survey, it was the apparent disconnection between science and Christianity that was a real stumbling block. So I want to say a few things about that, about the apparent conflict between science and Christianity, before we look at what it was that convinced those early Christians um, about uh, the truth of God. So that view that science and religion can't be put together is, is a pretty common view, I think. The Oxford chemistry professor Peter Atkins has said pretty simply, science and religion cannot be reconciled. So that's pretty blunt, isn't it? They, they just can't go back together. And I think a lot of people kind of have that view. They, 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 they see science over here and Christianity over here and, the, and never the twain shall meet. They can't come together in any way. 
Now, I don't want to try and prove to you scientifically that God exists this morning, but I do want to at least try and say a few things to to highlight that science doesn't make God implausible. That is, believing in science doesn't mean that you can't believe in God, and believing in God doesn't mean that you can't be a scientist. Now, there's not enough time to lay out all the things to say about that. If you want to know more, there's a great book uh, by John Lennox, the professor of mathematics at Oxford University. His book, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God?, is really an exploration of that idea. That's a great place to dig into, Uh, if you want to investigate that issue. But I want to just make three points uh, very quickly about the relationship between science and God. And the first thing to say is that there are actually lots of people who are scientists and who are Christians. So some of the most famous people in scientists in history have been committed Christians. So people like Isaac Newton, uh, Francis Bacon, Blaise Pascal, Michael Faraday... uh, All Christian men. Uh, More recently, there are people like Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Project, or Professor Bill Phillips, who won the Nobel Prize uh, in Physics, uh, or Sir Brian Heap, a former vice president of the Royal Society, um, to name just a few people. So there are at least people who don't think it's impossible to be a scientist and a Christian, and they're pretty smart scientists. Uh, knowing that, now knowing that doesn't mean that you and I should believe the Bible, just because they uh, believe in and trust in Jesus doesn't mean that they're right, but at least it gives us cause for serious thought that there are some seriously intelligent people who don't think it's uh, unreasonable to be a scientist uh, and a Christian. There are people who, who uh, don't believe that God is just a myth. There are scientists who believe that don't believe that God is just a myth and that the stories about Jesus' death and life and resurrection are just nice stories. They believe those things really happened. The second thing to say is that those scientists who are Christians don't decide to leave their brains at the door when they come to Jesus. So one of the most common views about science and religion is that science is based on rational thought Uh, while religion is based on a kind of a leap of faith, which has no scientific basis or no rational basis. But while that might be true in in some religions, that's certainly not the kind of thing that the Bible encourages us to do. The Bible urges us to accept the truth about God on the basis of evidence. And that's the way that many of these Christian scientists think as well. That is, they don't say to themselves, well, I'll use my brain for science... And then I'll just forget about using my brain when it comes to Jesus. I'll use my brain Monday to Friday, uh, and then I'll leave my brain behind when I come to church on Sunday. That's not how they think. In fact, they don't see the world of science and Christianity as in conflict, but actually, on quite the opposite, they see those things as mutually supportive, as, as, as affirming each other. So listen to this, these words from Sir John Uh, Horton, a fellow of the Royal Society. So that's a big group of scientists uh, in the UK. So John Horton writes, Our science is God's science. He holds the responsibility for the whole scientific story, the remarkable order, consistency, reliability and fascinating complexity found in the scientific description of the universe 
sorry, the remarkable order, consistency, reliability, and fascinating complexity found in the scientific description of the universe are reflections of the order, consistency, reliability, and complexity of God's activity. That is, he's saying, as a scientist, when I look at the world scientifically, I see God behind that. Or listen to these words from the former director of Kew Gardens, Sir Gillian Prance. For many years, I have believed that God is the great designer behind all nature. All my studies in science since then have confirmed my faith. Uh, For Johannes Kepler, the famous German astronomer, science was not opposed to his Christian faith, nor was it separate from it, but it was a matter actually of thinking God's thoughts after him. That is, science uncovers the mind of God. Reveals to us something about who God is and how he works in the world. God is at work in science uh, and in the natural world and we see that uh, in the science that we do. Uh, So first of all, there are Christians who are scientists. Second, those scientists don't leave their brains at the door. They don't think that being uh, a a Christian scientist is, uh, is mutually exclusive. Third, there are lots of good reasons based on science to think that belief in God is not only possible but actually the best explanation of the facts. So let me give you just two quick examples uh, of, of why that might be. The first example is something you might have heard of. It's known as the fine-tuning of the universe. It's basically an undisputed idea by people, whether they're Christians or atheists. And the idea is this, that in order for our world to exist, a whole lot of incredibly unlikely things have to have worked out very, very precisely. To our world is extremely unlikely, uh, not just extremely, but but you know, it's just, it just it's miraculous actually, the fact that it exists at all. So, f- to give an example, two of the most fundamental forces of our universe are what are called the strong nuclear force and the electromagnetic force. It doesn't matter what they are or what they do. The point is this: is the point is this? It's is that it's been estimated. Uh, that if the ratio between those two forces was out by 1 in 10 to the power of 6, so that is 1 in 10,000 billion, if those numbers were different by just 1 in 10,000 billion, then no stars in our universe could have formed. 1 in 10,000 billion. The chance of winning the lottery is 1 in 45 million. 1 in 45 million. That's not even in the same ballpark. Now, if you thought that was extraordinary, uh, even more incredibly, if the ratio between the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force was out by 1 in 10 to the power of 40, so 1 in 10,000 trillion, 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 right? If that number was out by just different by that much, then our universe could not exist. And the thing is, there's... There's loads of those numbers, actually. And the more of those numbers there are, the more improbable it gets that any of them were was in the range that's required. The fact that our universe exists is miraculous. And in fact, so all scientists, whatever their persuasion, religious persuasion, believe that. Our universe is miraculous. It's unexpected. It's, it's, it's unlikely. Another way of saying it, I think, is that our universe looks uncannily as though it has been designed to exist and designed for our existence. The second example uh, 
is, is one that I have found particularly helpful. It comes from my favourite subject, mathematics. Uh, I've talked about this before, but one of the most amazing things about mathematics is that correct mathematical solutions are beautiful and elegant. Uh, it's really, really nice. But mathematicians say that. Mathematicians who are not Christians, they, they spend their lives searching for, an, for a mathematical answer. And you would think that in a random world that the answers that you would come to would be random and randomly complex. But the thing, that the thing that mathematicians find is that when they finally get to the answer, they finally get to the equation, they finally get to the solution, they find that it's profoundly simple, profoundly elegant, and it has this kind of sense of rightness. And these mathematicians who don't even believe in God, they talk about that. They talk about the elegance and the beauty of these solutions and the unlikeliness of that. There was a guy, Eugene Wigner, a, uh, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics, who write, wrote a paper called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And he said, how is it that these, that these things, these mathematical formulas that just kind of exist somewhere in the ether, how is it that they can describe our world and make sense of our world and do so so well? And mathematicians talk about mathematical formulas as things not that humans have invented, but actually as ideas that exist that are there to be found. But where do they come from? Where do they come from in the explosion of matter? Where do ideas come from? It's almost as if those ideas were there come from another mind, a profoundly elegant and beautiful mind, and there for us as human beings to discover. Now, that's just two examples. There's more than that to say. If you want to read more, you can read a book uh, by Edgar Andrews called Who Made God? It's a really helpful study of those kinds of things. But the point I really want to make is that if you're a scientifically minded person, you don't need to check your brain at the door to consider Christianity or to believe Christianity. And in fact, I would strongly encourage you not to do that, not to leave your brain at the door, but actually to use your brain because I'm confident the more that you use your brain to discover the facts and to push down into your doubts, as you do that with openness and being willing to, to go where that might lead, I think you'll find that it actually makes more sense of science not less. And it makes more sense of the world and not less sense of the world. So I think there are some good reasons to believe that science and Christianity don't have to be at opposite ends of the spectrum. But I want to shift gears now and then ask a kind of another question that I flagged before. That is, what was it that convinced people in the first place what was it that convinced those early Christians, not only that God existed, but actually that Jesus was God himself and he'd come into our world to make God known? You see, one of the best pieces of evidence for the existence of God is actually the life of Jesus. Why is that a good piece of evidence for the existence of God? Well, for starters, it's because the people who eventually came to believe that Jesus was God himself were not expecting God to come into their world as a man. They weren't sitting around 
you know, kind of in the, in the sand in the first century, saying to themselves, when is God going to turn up as a human being? That was the furthest thing from their mind. In fact, to, uh, to, to suggest that God could do that was blasphemous. It was the kind of thing that would get you killed by the religious authorities. But something happened. What was it that happened that made these people believe something that they would never have thought of believing? Something which would get them killed. Well, I want to look at two stories which give an answer to that question. Uh, the first little story is a story that we read before from the biography of Jesus written by a man named Mark. It's a simple story in many ways. Jesus' followers are in the boat with Jesus. Uh, a storm comes up, the boat begins to flood, they're afraid of drowning, Jesus is there kind of sleeping on this cushion, he he's, doesn't seem particularly afraid of what's going on. They wake him up, hoping that he can help them, but what he does to help them is not at all what they're expecting. He stands up, he rebukes the storm with three words, he says, quiet, be still, and it is. The wind dies down and the, and the sea is calm. And at the end of the episode, Jesus' followers turn to each other and they say to themselves, who is this guy? Who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's a loaded question in the context of this biography that Mark is writing. The disciples don't yet have the categories in their heads, in their minds, for this kind of thing. This is not what they were expecting. They weren't expecting a guy to stand up and, and, and have control over the environment. You know, a courageous person might be able to fall asleep in a boat and not be worried about a storm killing them. You know, the disciples look, there's Jesus, he's asleep in the boat, he's not worried, and they're thinking, you know, who's this guy? He's a bit of a, bit of a hero, <laughs> pretty calm sort of guy. Anyone could, maybe not anyone, but you could probably find a few people who'd be like that. But who's this guy who can stand up and command nature and tell it what to do and calm a storm there were lots of people in those days uh, who could do some pretty crazy things just like there are today there's lots of people who can do various kinds of magic tricks or illusions you know you see them on the tv doing people doing extraordinary things but this is next level right this is this is something more than that there's lots of things that you can fake, but how do you fake standing up in a boat and telling a, wind, a storm to die down and, and it happening? How do you fake that? You know, you could maybe do a kind of localised miracle. You could, maybe you could fake walking on water. Maybe you could fake turning water into wine. But to stand up and calm a storm, that's the power of God and that's the authority of God. And these guys saw that and it blew their minds and it began to change the way they thought about who Jesus was. They still, don't, they still haven't got it at this point, but they're beginning to be challenged into realising that Jesus is more than just an ordinary guy. And Jesus did loads of other things too that that kind of pushed them toward that. He fed 5,000 people from a couple of loaves of bread. He walked on water. He raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind and he made the lame walk. We're not talking about 
healing someone's painful hip. You know, I'm not talking about praying over someone uh, who has lower back pain and they're saying, oh, I don't feel anything anymore. We're talking about people who'd never walked since birth and people had seen them sitting at the gates for years, unable to move, and saying, get up and walk. And we're not talking about miracles that were done in back alleys or in someone's house that no one could see. We're talking about miracles that were done in the public eye that people could see and people could test. But if there was one miracle, one event in Jesus' life which was more extraordinary than anything, which really convinced his followers who he was, it was his resurrection. When Jesus was crucified, when he was killed, his followers fled. They were broken, they were shattered, they'd lost all hope. They thought it was all over. They must have thought that they'd given their lives to a lie. Can you imagine it? A guy comes along uh, and he looks like an absolute hero, an absolute gun. He's doing these crazy things. He's healing people. He's calming the storm. They give their lives. They give three years of their lives to follow this guy. They leave their work. They're going after him. And then all of a sudden he's killed. And they think to themselves, that's it, done. What a waste of three years of my life. None of his followers were expecting him to rise from the dead. Some of the women uh, who knew Jesus and loved Jesus had got up early, a few days after his death. They were going to the tomb. Why were they going to the tomb? Not because they were hoping to see him there alive. They were going to the tomb with all kinds of embalming stuff in order to, to anoint his body. They were convinced that he was dead. And in fact, on the way to the tomb, they, were, they suddenly thought to themselves, oh man, what are we going to do when we get there? Because there's this huge stone in front of the, the, the opening of the tomb. We're not going to be able to move it. And yet they get there and they're astonished to find the tomb already opened. And not only opened, but empty. And inside the tomb, there's this man, an angel, a message from, messenger from God, telling them that Jesus is not dead, but he's risen to life again. And then over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to numerous people, to his disciples, hundreds of others, giving proof that he really had risen from the dead. And I want to just read a few words, actually, from one of those accounts. From one of those accounts in another biography of Jesus, we read from Mark, but in another biography and written by a guy called Matthew, there's a few verses at the end where Jesus appears to his disciples. And Matthew writes this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here in this account, we find Jesus' followers, his disciples, meeting Jesus alive and well. And I want to just point out two things. The first is, some of them doubted. Here he was standing in front of them, alive and well. 
and yet some of them still had trouble coming to terms with that fact. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? People don't rise from the dead every day. You can imagine that some of them were standing there thinking, is this really him? (laughs) Am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? You can imagine maybe some of them thinking, maybe... Maybe he hadn't really died in the first place. But their doubts were overcome by the reality of Jesus standing there in front of them. And later Thomas, one of the other disciples, saw the nails in Jesus' hands and, and the, the hole in his side where he'd been killed, shown to be dead. Their doubts were real, but they were overcome by the reality of what was in front of them. You see, trusting Jesus doesn't mean that all our doubts completely disappear. It doesn't mean that uh, we never have questions. What it means is that we choose to chase down those doubts by looking hard at the evidence and actually by taking the evidence at face value and accepting it for what it is. So some of the disciples doubted, but but notice too what else they do. That is, they worship Jesus. So despite their doubts, despite their questions, they recognize something of profound importance. They recognize what the resurrection says about who Jesus is. They recognize that it says that Jesus is God himself, come down to our earth to rescue people. Faithful Jews, which these people were, were not people who would worship a mere human being. Worship was reserved for God alone. And so because of the resurrection, Jesus' disciples recognize that in doing that, in, in, in God raising Jesus from the dead, and the Father raising Jesus from the dead, he has declared Jesus to be exactly who Jesus claimed to be. That is God's own son and God himself come in the flesh to rescue those uh, who entrust themselves to him. And that's confirmed by Jesus' own words here. Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the claim of God, right? That's a claim to have the authority and the prerogatives of God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Despite their doubts, in the end, Jesus' followers were convinced of who Jesus was. So one early Christian leader um, whose writings are collected in the New Testament, he wrote this. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. These people were not only convinced that God existed, but they were convinced that God had come to rescue us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're sceptical about the existence of God, uh, it's unlikely that what I've said this morning will have convinced you outright. 
But I hope that what it has done is at least shown you that there's good reasons to keep digging. Uh, good reasons to keep looking harder. And if you're not convinced that God exists, I want to encourage you to explore things and to keep exploring things. I encourage you to take one of those biographies of Jesus from Matthew and Mark that Graham pointed out before. Read them. Ask questions of them. Uh, and as you do that, ask God that if he's really there, that he would make himself known to, known to you. you. You can pray that. God, if you're really there, help me to know that. As I read about Jesus, help me to know uh, who Jesus is and who you are. And as Graham said, there's, there's Christianity Explored coming up as well, which is a great place to dig into one of those biographies of Jesus' life even more. But uh, I guess what I want to say is keep digging. Keep chasing down those doubts uh, and, and, and keep testing and seeing who Jesus is uh, through the Bible. Uh, there'll be a time for questions in a moment too, as Graham said before, but before we do that, let me, let me pray. Uh, Lord God, we ask you that you would reveal yourself to anyone here who doesn't know you. For those who doubt that you exist, we ask that you would reveal yourself to them in Jesus so they would know the certainty of who you are and who Christ is. Help them to chase down their doubts, to explore them, to dig into them uh, and to explore the evidence and in doing that, help them to see you and in seeing you, to entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.